Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gregor Robertson, sitting in for Hugh Wozencroft, who I think is enjoying his third day of playoff action from the Royal Box at Wembley. Not bad for some. Today we look back at all the action of a, a hectic season finale, the battle for Premier League survival. We look at all the twists and turns in, the, in a unique Premier League campaign, as well as Luton's remarkable promotion from the Championship playoff final at Wembley on Saturday. Joining me to dissect it all is Tony Cascarino, Alison Rudd and Tom Olnick. This is The Game. Okay, Survival Sunday. I would say it lived up to the billing. Would you not, guys? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Everton uh, Everton were down for 23 minutes um, following <laughs> Harvey Barnes' strike. And my God, the, the tension, you could feel the tension through the TV at Goodison Park. Um, but ultimately, they're the team who, who came out breathing, finally, at the end, Tony. Yes, and... It was a strange game in many ways because it wasn't what I was expecting as as in they're going to throw the kitchen sink at Bournemouth, which they sort of huffed and puffed in the first half. Not much quality. I did find Tarkovsky, Amina, very annoying because once he went 1-0 up, they basically kept throwing themselves. Tarkovsky gets involved in every argument and Yuri, Yuri, Yuri Mina, likewise, they seem to want to fight everybody. And you know, Fair play to Bournemouth and Gary O'Neill. They put out a really decent Bournemouth side. Made a bit of a game of it. I mean, the Pickford save, um, pretty comfortable under normal circumstances. Um, I look at Leicester and I look at, you know, Leeds, really. You know, you think the week before and Leeds played so well in 20 minutes at, uh, against West Ham at the London Stadium and then got one in up and then tried to hang on and ended up conceding a, a number of goals. And Leicester didn't offer anything at Newcastle. They've gone down because they didn't have their fate in their own hands. And even though Leeds lost and Alison was at Leeds yesterday, I'm sure she would say they're, they're absolutely terrible. They were never going to stay up. But it was a strange dynamic. So, you know... Gregor, we've been part of football and one thing you say say all the time was, you know, the line was you want your destiny in your own hands and yet Leicester chose really not to go down that road because of the way they attempted to play at New, Newcastle um, strange, strange dynamic uh, Deitch won five games and mm. four of them were 1-0 I mean, it's pretty clear, Tom that Sean Deitch's kind of fingerprints ultimately were enough for Everton Um you know, there was one game, 5-1, win, win against Brighton, which was a bit of an anomaly, but clearly tightening up at the defence and the kind of Sean Dyche-isms that we all know so well were just enough for Everton, Tom. Yeah, I mean, this year you didn't really need that much to stay up, did you? I mean, you look at the points in the end, Leeds 31, Leicester 34, Everton 36, you know what I mean? You look at someone like Bournemouth, they finished with 39 and they were effectively safe, what, four or five five games ago. Um it was always going to be, I think, one or two wins would would do it um, between these last two or three. Uh, Sean Dyche, yeah, I mean, <laughs> fair play to him. He he came in and everyone sort of thought, can he can he turn this around? You know, I mean, Everton, their defence, you know, their team, which had such a lack of sort of spine and and solidity, and as you say, those one nil wins in the end, you know, proved proved crucial. And what a goal! I mean, Decore's strike at us. You know, fantastic shot. I love the way, you know, in, in the kind of the, the harem scare of that kind of occasion, just that sort of split second moment where the ball is kind of hanging in the air and he just manages to keep his head very still, uh, take a breath, get his feet right in the right position. I thought it was absolutely sublime kind of technique just to to drive that ball so so cleanly into the net. So it was a, a scruffy season for Everton 
um, but a wonderful goal to kind of to, to, to end it for them. And obviously the issues carry on. I mean, I think I do think for Everton, I think it's been said before, but obviously this is a kind of a, a strange moment because it kind of feels like a triumph. But equally, it's obviously been a, a huge failure the, the season and they need to, to find a way to make sure it doesn't happen again next year. Um, Tom, would you make a point of also, sorry, now I'll bring you in on this as well, that that 5-1 victory at Brighton, that inspirational result, the one that no one expect could happen, is something that I was, I was trying to associate with Leicester not trying to attempt at Newcastle, that you're going to need a big victory in the running that everybody thinks you're going to get beat. And Everton did achieve that by their win at uh, Brighton. Well, I think yeah. I think that's really interesting, Tony, that you bring that up because I what what mattered, I think, with that huge win was that Dyche did not get overexcited about it. And I think of the three managers put in charge as, you know, emergency measures almost, Dyche was the one who didn't act like there was a crisis. So going in on the final day, you had Dean Smith, who was uh, mostly most of the time perplexed that a team that were clearly quite classy in training weren't pulling it off on the pitch. You had Sam Allardyce, who, who just seemed to be keen to distance himself almost from what was happening on the pitch because it wasn't what he wanted to happen on the pitch. So both of them, um, whether they knew it or not, were exuding negative vibes, whereas Dyche managed to maintain this, oh, you know, it's business as usual. Uh, we just we just work very hard. If there if you know Calvert Lewin wasn't available for most of his time, and instead of making that an excuse, waiting in the wings that he could pluck out if something went wrong, he didn't. He didn't do that. So his his way of handling the relegation battle and the fact it went to the last day was, I think, it was probably easier for him, but because it was in his own hands. But he he. He, he, I think the players responded to that sense of almost it's business as usual and that they had some, you could tell they had some faith in his methodology as well. So I, I think I think if there's any justice to what happened on the final day, the, the manager who grasped what was needed the best was the one that emerged triumphant. I think he handled the... The celebrations, if that's the right word, very well as well. They weren't very celebratory. They were kind of, you know, looking forward to saying that we know there's a massive task still ahead. We can't be in this mm. position again. I think he says, you know, Everton are a big club with a big history, but we're not performing like a big club. And he's absolutely right. There's still obviously a, you know, allegation of uh, breaching F- FFP rules hanging over their head. Um, and they might have to sell, might have to sell one or two players. To, to to stay within those those boundaries, um, but do you think you know Sean Dyche is the man to kind of to lead them forward and up the table and make sure they're not in the same position next season, Tony? Well, I think there's some. Uh, let's let's remember as well, Everton didn't have their two natural right and left back plan yesterday. You know, Decore was left aside by Frankie Lampard when he was in charge, and he ends up getting the winning goal. You Connor know, Cody came back in after yeah, Connor Cody. January. You know, he's made some big calls, but it went understated and a bit alluding to what Alison said. You know, the way he handled things, and I think it's obvious to us all is a massive challenge for Everton ahead. You know, recruitment has been dreadful. You know, you think of the Richarlison money and the Anthony Gordon money and what they've invested in, and you know, when Neil Mopag went there, I was like, that's 
he's not good enough for Everton. Or am I thinking the Everton of now? But I'm, I, I sometimes get a little bit caught, caught up with the past and get a bit nostalgic about the Everton team that I sort of knew and, and think, well, OK, he, he solves a problem. But he didn't solve a problem because he didn't offer very, very little. That's why he never got close to the team, even though Calvert-Lewin was injured so often. And I think Dyche handled all that well. But there's huge challenges ahead because they generally have a squad that isn't quite good enough. There has to be change, and he's got to be part of that going into next season, whatever budget they've got. Because like you said, Gregor, we really don't know financial fair play, um, what's available. We really don't know that. I, I've noticed that all the clubs down the bottom, all the money that came in for all of them, if you look at Leeds, Rafinha and Calvin Phillips, same thing, the money that they spent, well, how much of it really paid off? If you look at Southampton, spent a lot uh, in the money you know that they had last season. So they've all spent, and you could look at, you know, from Leeds to Leicester for Fania money. You know, all these clubs had money and had big sales of players, and yet it really didn't benefit them in any shape or form. To go back to your question, though, uh, Gregor, I bet, I'm pretty sure, that when Dyche was appointed, most Everton fans thought, OK, this is a short-term appointment. Yeah. He's not very Everton, but he might have the nous to get us out of a predicament. Um, he was a, seen as a, a decent antidote to Lampard. But now that they've seen him in action, and as you pointed out, his demeanour following victory wasn't, you know, I mean, it contrasted quite starkly with the way Frank Lampard celebrated wildly when Everton was safe last season, that he's... He's sort of so much Mr. Sensible. I think those fans who thought, yeah, good short-term appointment are now thinking, actually, why wouldn't we want to build with him? Do you not think that's probably the change? Yeah, Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that when he was appointed, he was like a manager for the club that Everton, Everton are at this moment in time rather than the club they want to be. And uh, I think they've probably come to realise that it's going to be a long time before they can become the club they want to be, you know, because of all the restraints, because of the mess, because of, you know, those four empty seats in the director's box and the kind of the acrimony that's still at the club. So um, Deitch might be the, the kind of calming presence to 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 kind of steer the club into 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 a brighter future. So I think probably King Power is the next place to go to because um, <laughs> it's incredible that in the space of seven years they've gone from Premier League champions to... With a with an FA Cup victory thrown in to um to the championship, they held up their bargain with a with a two win two one win against West Ham, but it wasn't enough ultimately. And you know, despite Harvey Barnes' early strike giving them hope, um, Leicester are a championship club now. So Tony, what went what went wrong for Leicester this year? Basically everything. You know, every, they paid a huge price with injuries. They paid a pr- huge price with players that some of them were. You know, obviously, like Tillman's coming out of contract. They, you know, the whatever happened to Jamie Vardy, and, he, and I, I know his age. Will people say he lost half a yard in pace, um, and and was left out by? I can only imagine there was a rift between him and Brendan because why wouldn't you have used Vardy more? And when he did play, he looked a shadow of the player he was, and that's just across the board. You know, you look at when you have James Madison and you have Barnes. Barnes has got what thirteen Premier League goals uh, this season. You know, that's a huge return from a winger. James Madison, you know, he's a he's a £50 million player. And, you know, again, going back to Newcastle, 
game where some players were left on the bench and didn't play and you had to get a, a, some sort of result and well yeah draw's okay but it wasn't enough to have the, your destiny in your, on your side I think Leicester just got a lot wrong and I think as much as people keep telling me Brendan was a good manager, I did feel that his relationship with the players showed that they didn't quite look as hungry as a group. And I didn't feel that unity within the club that we all know you must have, whether you're fighting relegation, whether you're challenging for the league, Europe, you need to have that. And there were times where Leicester were just dreadful. And they've got goals. You can't tell me there's not goals in that team. Because there, there is. Just look at their numbers. Out of all the teams in the bottom end of the or bottom of the table, Leicester easily had the the opportunity. Here, Natural could get goals, and oh, okay, Daka didn't get enough. Vardy didn't get enough. But you had Barnes and you had Madison. There, there was enough in that team for them to score goals on a regular basis. Yet they've ended up still going down. Yeah, there's a line that jumped out to me in James Gearbrandt's report that not for 12 years have a side been relegated having scored as many as 51 goals. That backs yeah. up exactly what you're saying. But they conceded 68 and kept seven clean sheets. Tom, that kind of sums up their problems on the pitch this season. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of been the thing with Brendan Rodgers throughout his career, isn't it? I mean, we all know that as a coach, you know, he can create teams that, that play very nice football, very good in possession, can play out from the back, create chances, score goals. The huge asterisk with Rodgers has always been that eventually the kind of defence catches up with his teams. And I think that has kind of come to pass with this Leicester side as well. As, as we see, you know, they've got great players going forward. And if the game was purely about scoring goals, and I don't think they would have gone down this season, but the defence just wasn't good enough. But I mean, I mean, equally, you know, you look at Leicester, there's sort of a broader picture here, isn't there? Over the last few years, a club that has sold, you know, players for huge money, Maguire, uh, Fafana, Chilwell, uh, who else am I missing? You know, I mean, I mean, Schmeichel obviously was a huge figure, maybe not such a big fee. But you know, which of these players have they replaced? You know, how how is this team that won the title um, evolved in the last few years? You know, there haven't been. I, I can hardly think of a player that they brought in in the last two or three years that has really strengthened this team that has moved it on. And I think the yeah. Premier League, with all these sides that have gone down, with Leeds as well. You know, you have to evolve a team that does well that Bielsa side you know the, the, this Leeds team is still basically relying on the same three or four players the same core that got promoted and in the Premier League you can have maybe one bad transfer window you can maybe just about get away with two but if you're kind of going two or three years without making one or two good signings and you're letting players go no matter who you are in the league you'll end up being in a relegation battle and that and that's what's happened I think with Leicester eventually the recruitment hasn't been good enough. They've sold too many good players and not replaced them with players that have made the team better. And, and eventually, you know, all that's left now is, a, is an ageing Vardy who can't score anymore and a very talented James Madison. Um, but Madison wasn't enough. That's what? such a good point, Tom. I think, I think you're spot on. And I think also what happened was there, is, there are clubs that don't have the dosh, but they, they rely heavily on... Uh, a entirely committed manager uh, who's an excellent coach and gets the best out of what they've got and they make sure they plan properly and evolve that way and then you have the bigger clubs who are constantly thinking two seasons ahead and let's not rest on our laurels and refresh and refresh get better get better and be clinical and cunning in the transfer market and Leicester were mm. neither of those things they were partly a big club because of the FA Cup and the league win they had that a part of a big club mentality and then they were also the other half of Leicester was that it was still wrapped up in it being 
totally unrealistic that they'd done those two things and they were they were a sort of myth of a club and weren't real at all and therefore one that really needed to be cleverer in the transfer mm. market and have a coach that um wanted to build and build and build and Rogers got to the point where he wanted the money spent and it wasn't being spent and he sort of gave up mm. isn't it strange you know I'm just going to say, say to that Gregor that these are little things, but I never got, at the start of the season, Casper Michael leaving for a million pound. And there was, apparently, he wanted a three-year deal and they only offered him a one. And and I'm thinking, you've let someone go with a statue who's been part of that 16 team that's been at the club a long time. And I just didn't get it. I thought, that's a strange one. So I assume straight away, but there must have been some sort of breakdown, with the, whether it's with a club or the manager, blah, blah, blah. He ends up going to Nice. You know, then you look at Soyuncu. You know, what happened to him? He was a decent player. And did he? I, I don't, didn't recognise him this season. Who's a player that was a holding midfielder, got robbed the teams of possession a lot, done really, really well. And then you had Jamie Vardy on top where you go, Jamie Vardy, a year ago, you know, he got a number of goals and yes, he might have lost half a yard, but he looked to shut, even when he played, I mean, he just didn't even look like he was involved. He, he had minimum... You know, we looked at Haaland's numbers of how many touches he had. Well, I could say, well, I watched Le- uh, Leicester and Vardy had even less in some games. I just didn't get how this all developed the way it did. Charlotte made a good point in a report today, uh, Charlotte Dunker. I think Leicester have eight players out of contract that mm. we paid £100 million for in total. So they also had the seventh highest wage bill in the Premier League. You know, over their success over the years, it's kind of... they have. They were, while they were trying to break into that elite group of clubs, mm. it's also come at a cost. So, you know, while, while they do have assets like Harvey Barnes, mm. Madison, clearly, who will raise a huge amount of money, there's still some big questions and big kind of obstacles and hurdles for them to you know, to get over between now and, and uh, taking on the championship, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. It's it's a weird development. I, I can't... I couldn't put my finger on a lot of stuff that was happening over the course of the season with Leicester. And I just kept thinking there must be breakdowns internally because for them to be so poor and I watched them play uh, Chelsea in I think it was early March I was at the game and Chelsea were woeful at the time and you know they had been pretty much all season Chelsea won comfortably 3-1 and and I remember thinking this Leicester side has got a real problem and they went on a disastrous run around that time from March into April Um, and look sometimes you unless you're in the camp you, 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 and months later, or sometimes even years later, people will talk about that time and say, "Well, this was happening internally," and uh, it, it feels like that to me. Alison, just finally on this, I mean, clearly it's a huge fall from from Greece in the space of seven years. And Steve Parrish wrote a column in the Sunday Times actually saying that no club is safe in the Premier League. There's no such mm. thing as safety. <laughs> and he went back to a kind of a season. I think it was thirty odd years ago where. Uh, Palace went down on goal difference, and you know, the 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 also the scale of the drop in terms of income between the Premier League and after the parachute payments end. I think he said that Crystal Palace would go from earning 170 million pounds to 20 million pounds in turnover, and yeah. if they stayed in the Championship for for four years. So I suppose the question is, what could this happen to anyone? Uh, you know, is the the Premier League, you know, we're talking about a team who won the Premier League seven years ago and are now in the Championship. Could Is, is Steve Parrish right? Is there no such thing as safety for this group of maybe 13, 14 clubs in, in the Premier League every season, Alison? Well, I think he's right because it's not... Well, it, it, I mean, there are some clubs who will 
have access to enough dosh to make sure they can literally buy their way out of trouble. But if you don't know, if you don't have a clear identity and a clear plan, then you are going to be vulnerable no matter who you are. I mean, there was there was a time when the gallows humour at Chelsea was that, oh, you know, this fans would sing, we are staying up because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they could technically have gone down uh, and they didn't because they just, whilst their flaws were too many players, they had enough players to find some, just enough. And there were, there were teams worse than them. But the, the fact that a club with the billions behind it that Chelsea have could could have so lost its way that it could have been it could have it could have been relegated. That 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 shows you that no one is safe because you have to, as I said, if you don't know what you are, and I, I think that was fundamentally what was wrong with Leicester, both on and off the pitch. I mean, sometimes you'd watch Leicester play, and you'd think, well. You know, I'm I'm getting quite a few glimpses of the Leicester we all love here. You know, they're really good on the break. They've got such creativity. They play with freedom. You know, this is this is nice to watch. And then you then you get more than just a glimpse of of how there was nothing solid there. It, you know, glimpses of a flair aren't enough to keep you in the Premier League. So it's knowing it's if you know what you are, what you want, and how you're going to budget for that. How are you going to plan for it? If you've got the right people in key positions, crucially the coach, the head coach, of course, then you'll be okay. It doesn't matter. But if you if you make lots and lots of poor decisions, then mm. those poor decisions can be made by, as we've seen, can be made by the biggest of clubs. So Parrish is right. You are, you can't, in fact, if you do assume you're too, too big to go down, you, you might threaten, you might threaten your status. Isn't it interesting if we all sat here Okay, and we said, well, okay, let's go back five or six years ago. How many teams have been relegated in that period? So my my question would be, how many clubs do we think in the next five years different clubs will get relegated? And we're probably looking at ten, minimum. Ten different clubs. The ones that come up and the ones that go down, obviously sometimes we've seen lights of Norwich go up and then come down. We've seen Fulham go down. We've seen what happens with Leeds uh, and we've seen Southampton go. You know, are we going to sit here and go... Luton Town are going to go up and are they going to be in the Premier League next year? Or the year after, sorry? Maybe not. Are Martin and Forest going to go down in the next five years? Probably, very likely. So it doesn't take a lot to get you in the mire and go, get relegated. There's probably, I mean, I, I haven't looked at numbers, but if we looked at the numbers the last five or six years, Gregor, we could probably find there was probably 10, 11, maybe 12 clubs that have actually gone down. So, yes, Parish is right. Yeah. I think that brings us on nicely to Leeds, a club who doesn't, don't really know what they are. <laughs> They've gone from Marcelo Bielsa to, to Sam Allardyce. Alison, you were there. Sam Allardyce, uh, discuss. Oh well, kind of well, it was it was a very it was a very strange day, Gregor. It was the fans did their bit, so there was a lot of. Um, I mean, the atmosphere was fantastic. It, albeit the sort of atmosphere that makes your hair stand up on the back of your neck and makes you feel a bit nervy at the same time there was literally electricity in the air and but the fans decided to go for it which was good and they turned pretty quickly but they they started out positive and if you if you just watch Sam Allardyce on the touchline it was very peculiar because he looked like a man that was completely deluded he looked like he thought they were going to do it so he would over exaggerate his dismay at the, it was quite a number of 
um, poor misses. You know, they, they'd create opportunities and the, the final execution of them was <clears throat> quite poor. But, you know, he'd, he'd sort of roll around and look like, oh, you know, that, that, that was it. That was the moment where we, oh, we're going to be safe. We're going to be safe. He over-celebrated the consolation goal that Leeds scored. Uh, but, but equally, there were moments where he'd be throwing his chewing gum on the floor and looking looking half the size that he was five minutes earlier when when they did concede it was strange and then afterwards he was talking about staying put and having you know, he wanted he wants talks to, to you know maybe he's not saying if he wants it or not necessarily he's prepared to have chats about whether he stays at the club and you just think, oh my goodness, this is this is a club that has veered from I would call Mar- Marcelo Bielsa the ultimate non-pragmatist, a coach who did not waver one centimetre in his belief in the way football is played and the way you train to play that football, and never never looked at the opposition and thought maybe we should set up a different way today. Never did that didn't know the meaning of the word pragmatism although we'll never know literally if he didn't know the meaning of the word pragmatism because he wouldn't speak any english but let's assume he knew what pragmatism was and he didn't know the meaning of it it you went from him we've gone from him all the way through to allardyce who is the ultimate pragmatist and that is not an insult in any way i think i think it's very important to be pragmatic in football um and over his entire career uh, i think allardyce um although he get people make jokes at his expense I think the success he's had has been because of his pragmatism and his ability to morph a team into being incredibly defensive and dour for one game but expansive in another when when the opposition allowed them to be um that's what he's good at so you've gone from you know the two extremes of football management in a short space of time because that's 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 where uh, idealism gets you I think I mean Bielsa was seductive and the fans loved him but I don't think he's I don't think he left the club the team in a great place I think they now they had glimpses of what they could do under a Bielsa style training regime and there were there were moments that were nice and they did attack with some imagination and commitment and they did have some energy and there were some great one-on-one tackles in that game but collectively they were a mess and ragged at the back and looked tired and out of their depth and I don't think as a neutral watching it I could summon any pity for them being relegated because they didn't they just didn't possess the aura of a Premier League club at all. That's all sat watching this and it kind of struck me that Bielsa almost mastered deficiencies because they played in such a unique style. They kind oh. of man marking it almost, you know, the way they defended was so unusual. It's, if you, it's almost like if you had diligent, hardworking, committed players, it could master deficiencies. And now they're being asked to be, well, since then, they've been asked to play a, a kind of slightly more traditional way of playing football, particularly defensively. And you just see they're nowhere near good enough. They conceded 78 goals mm. this season. Um, I think over the last three seasons they've conceded more goals than any other club in in uh, Europe's top five leagues as well. That kind of obviously that brings in some of Bielsa's uh, period, but it's incredible that we're still talking about Bielsa too. And it's like it feels like this is a club that needs to rip it all up and start again, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, look, Bielsa fact was 
in the factor of him and look when he was at Marseille he caused division because everything had to be the way he wanted it otherwise he didn't see the point of him being the manager or the coach that's how Bielsa is so obviously when the board started to lose a little bit of faith in Bielsa and certainly he wants all hands over transfers now if you said to me who in the Premier League has had the worst transfer period I'd say Leeds some of the transfers they made have been extraordinary. Reuter coming from... I saw Jorginho Reuter at Wren uh, many moons ago. I mean, he's still a young man. I saw him and if you'd have said to me someone's going to pay £36 million for him down the line, I'd have said no chance. And, and look, they went for the Jesse Marsh thing as well where he brought in some players that he knew and worked with. No and Premier it, League experience too. I yeah, think Dan James absolutely. is the last player who, who had Premier League experience at the same. Yeah, and Gregor, it's just been... It's spiralled out of control. That's what it looks like to me. It's not gone... Yes, you could make an argument, look, maybe Bielsa's time had come to an end, but Bielsa doesn't work with people who don't believe in him. And I think that shone through from me because this isn't the first time it's happened to him as a manager. The reason Leeds fans still talk about him because they see that as one of the glorious periods mm -hmm. from the Championship to the Premier League, the way they went about their business, the way they played, the endeavour that you could never question blood, sweat and tears with Leeds. You couldn't question that. Because even if they got beat 6-1, they were frying the kitchen sink at times, at teams. Sometimes there will be pundits like myself going, this is crazy, which it, it felt. But Bielsa's crazy. So what do you expect <laughs> from a crazy man? He, he was. And I think they've gone so far away from that. And like you, you know, Alison's used the word pragmatic, and they've gone from that to... That was desperation too. We've got to bring it back to the here and now a bit, Tom, and... Kind of probably have a little look at the work or well, the job done by Adria, uh, Andrea Radrizani and Victor Orta because they ultimately were the guys who were responsible for assembling the squad. Um, there's also the, the potential takeover by the 49ers enterprises on the horizon. So what what's the what does the future hold now for, for Leeds United? Yeah, I mean, it's question marks everywhere. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, if you look at the teams that go down... You know who do you, who is the best equipped to come back up, and I I would almost say Leeds are the the least well equipped to come up. I, ironically, I almost think Southampton might have the best kind of uh, base in terms of kind of talented young players ready to kind of adapt to the championship. But Leeds have just you know they got got doubts everywhere, uncertainties everywhere. I mean, I look, I look back at the appointment of Harry Gracia, for example, and I think you know when was that? That was sort of February, I think it was, and there was still time at that at that at that moment to kind of turn things around. And if you if you talk to people about Harry Gracia in Spain, for example, they, you know, they, he, he's very well, well liked, well thought of, very good coach. Everyone talks about his sort of methodical um, way of doing things on the training ground. Um, very kind of quiet, well mannered, calm. It's almost like a Sven Goran Eriksson kind of figure, if you like. But I, I don't really know if he's the right person to bring in in the kind of heat of the battle with three months to go. You know, it, it just it always struck me as a very underwhelming appointment. I think for everyone at Leeds, the fans, the players, the club. The situation they were in um, and I think that was the crucial one you know I think that even though there was so much attention and scrutiny on the on the kind of headline uh, comeback of Sam Allardyce at the end but actually it was too late by then you know I mean what was that three or four games to go there, there was really very little that Allardyce could do that you know the tide was kind of set by that at that point but that appointment of Harry Gracia I think in February was was the turning point for Leeds and you know if we look if we look at the clubs who have stayed have stayed up the ones have made the right managerial, you know, decisions. Forrest sticking with Cooper, um, you know, Leicester ditching Rodgers and bringing in Dean Smith. 
Southampton, you know, getting it wrong with Haas and Hootal, getting it wrong with um, Nathan Jones and then Sellers, obviously. You know, these are all decisions that the clubs have made during the season. And I think for Leeds, that Gracia appointment was just the, I think he's a good coach, but I think it was the wrong person at the wrong time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what, what we said earlier, you know, not evolving this team from that promotion side, still the same characters, the same kind of key players at the heart of that side, that the players they brought in the last year or so, not enough of them have changed this team for the better. And I think they fully deserve to go down. I mean, you look at the last, you know, you look at the last sort of couple of months of, of results, 1-5 against Palace, you know, 1-4 against Bournemouth. Um, okay, at home, losing 6-1 to Liverpool, losing at home again yesterday, 4-1. This is a team that, in the end, were not good enough for the Premier League. Um, and I think the fact they were still in it at the end was was nice drama, but actually I think they were gone a long time ago. Yeah, I think that fourth goal by Lucas Moura kind of summed up Leeds defensively. Liam Cooper having a lunge at him in, on the halfway line and then just running sort of unchallenged through through the very heart of their defence and prodding it over the line. So, yeah, huge one of those wonder goals you sort of think, is it an incredible yeah, goal? Yeah, that's or? true. It's true. It's a great yeah, moment for Moura, but... Um, it's also just shambolic defensively for Leeds. So yeah. um, that's the Maradona goal against England. Is that a wonder goal? <laughs> that's harsh like, well, well, no, no, it, it, because he was so brilliant. Uh, we all say, but if you think about how he just walked past defenders, and you'd go, "Well, Terry Fennick didn't get particularly close to him at that moment, did he?" No. <laughs> oh God! Uh, but it was a great goal. <laughs> Tom, shall we have a quick, quick word on Spurs here? Um, we're pipped by Villa for the final. European spot um, despite one of their better displays in, in quite some time um, but still been a hugely disappointing season for Spurs Yeah I mean I guess that like, almost summed it up really Spurs kind of delivering something when the pressure was off you know no uh, nothing on the line Harry Kane obviously delivering an incredible season I think it's worth worth saying what an amazing season it has been for him you know I mean, if it wasn't for Haaland um, I was looking this up a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if it's still if it's still uh, still the case, but he was, you know, far by far and away would have been top scorer in the Premier League. I think if he'd been sort of seven or eight goals clear of everyone else in the Premier League, we'd be talking about him as Player of the Year. Uh, he's ahead of Lewandowski, Benzema, you know, Mbappe, everyone else in Europe, and all of this in a, in a Tottenham team that, to be honest, have been one of the poorest Tottenham teams in many many years, and and you know, one of the main ingredients of that has been a lack of creativity, a lack of ability to create chances so how on earth Harry Kane has delivered this season in this Tottenham team uh, is beyond me really and I think it's it's real testament to obviously the quality that everyone knows but in terms of Spurs yeah I mean missing out on the Europa Conference League I don't think it's uh, necessarily going to be a bad thing for them next season I do think there's you know huge merit nowadays in, in qualifying for the Europa League you know I think it's a really good tournament to be in I think that would have been a good tournament for Spurs to be in uh, particularly now given the competition in the Premier League, I think winning the Europa League for some clubs like Tottenham is almost a, a more realistic option to get into the Champions League and finishing the top four. But the Conference League, I think, is a, is, a, is a step below that. And I do think that next season, them not having midweek games, having a new coach who can sort of prepare them during the week uh, for the weekends might be, a, might be a plus. But, I mean, Tottenham have been basically waiting for this season to end now for, for a few weeks. And it's incredible to think that when Conte was was sacked, they were, you know, a point off third. But it's uh, since then, it's just completely unravelled. And they'll be delighted, I think, to get to the summer, try and reset, try and find a new manager, a new director of football, <laughs> potentially replace Harry Kane. Um, it's all to do for Spurs, no doubt. Right? Listening to uh, Ryan Mason on Sunday, it was just, <laughs> I actually thought, 
Oh, I wonder if he's been listening to the game podcast because he suddenly, he did suddenly start listing all the things we've said they need. He started saying we under, we need to understand where we want to go, who we want to be, what's our cultural fit. Uh, we, you know, the most important thing for a club is to have an identity to know to know who you are, and this is all that we've been saying for months now is that there's this disconnect between what the fans want, what the manager wants and what the owner wants. And he he crystallised it. I mean, I think people have often taken the mickey out of Mason for wanting the job and believing he could have it. But, I mean, he's he's got it right in a nutshell. They need to spend the summer working out who they are, don't they? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? If you think about it, that in a period of time, and we're always led to believe that, you know, no player's bigger than a club. Well... At the moment, in this period of time, Harry Kane's bigger than everything at Tottenham. Okay? He's the most important player there. He's a player that other players would want to go and play with if they joined. Um, they can't afford to lose him because of where they would be without him. It's it's an incredible scenario. that And, and Ryan, look, Ryan got the job basically because he was Harry's best mate as well. <laughs> now, that's a bit unfair, but Harry obviously said... You know, something. How, how did Ryan Mason first get the job at Spurs as being a coach there? Why was he given that post? Now, his relationship with Kane was important because Harry is the most important thing at Spurs at this period of time. Long term, yes, of course, a player is not the most important thing. But as we stand today, it is all about what happens now. He's even more important than the manager, I feel. And people will go, well, that can't be, can't be, you know, that can't be right. The manager's the most important thing because they make all the major decisions and. I, I think, well, what are you going to do then? So how how bright is the horizon where no Harry Kane of even considering? Where do we all think Tottenham would be if there's no Harry Kane? Judging on their previous transfer record, or transfer recruitments, we could probably go, well, that's not been huge success. It's not like we're talking about Brighton and Brentford who have, you know, to a man, everybody they've brought in has somehow uplifted the team. So... I only see it, well, Kane is the biggest problem by a country mile. Until they resolve that, which they probably can't, then Tottenham are going to be in this issue for a long time. Yeah, huge questions at Tottenham. Aston Villa, though. We have to speak about Aston Villa. I mean, they they will be playing Europa Conference League football next season. I think they will be delighted about that. It's a long time since they, were, they played in, in Europe, and it is the third tier of European competition, but they will have a different viewpoint to Spurs, I'm sure. Um Incredibly, it's the 16th consecutive season that Unai Emery will be um, managing in Europe. Um, and what a job he's done. They'd won three of 13 games when he first arrived in, in November. We're hovering around the relegation zone. And if you, so there was a league table um, since Emery's arrival, Villa would be fifth. So a remarkable job that Emery's done, Tony. Extraordinary. Um, and look, and me and Alison would have a bit of a bias because... We were Liverpool fans and Steven Gerrard was, you know, our hero and was a great footballer and he'd also done some great things at the Academy at Liverpool and he'd done a great job at Glasgow Rangers that enabled him to get the Villa job. Um, and then the manager, obviously he lost his way slightly and there, there's, there, we talked about all this di disconnect and that certainly was happening at Villa Park, you know, with a number of players in and out of the team and... And I think Gerard lost faith in a number of them, didn't think they were good enough. A bit like Scotty Parker talked about his Bournemouth players, and then suddenly someone comes in 
a new nine where he was that man, ends up going, well, I know how I can get more out of these. And I mean, John McGinn was the most amazing one to me. I think he's a really good player. And he's a player that should be playing Champions League football. And I, I didn't get how he was playing so poorly. He was he was substitute at times at Villa Park this year in the early part of the season. And then you see that Unai Emery sees him and Ramsey. He, they can join the forwards when they, you know, they both got engines. They both can be driving midfielders. And then with that, Ollie Watkins, who was seemed to be not as clinical, suddenly becomes way more clinical. Opportunities for forwards and 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 when Dia comes in to a, become another player, then you look at the two centre halves. I think Tyrone Mings was a liability under times with Steven Gerrard. And then he's has a rock-solid partnership with Konza. It's like, how many players have, you know, have improved under Unai Emery? And I feel a little bit disloyal towards Steven Gerrard, only because I don't know him. I just feel like <laughs> he's my one of my favourite players ever. And um, it, it's strange because to a man, everybody at Villa Park improved over that period. And I just think... You know, look at his record, Unai Emery. He's he's been a classy manager, and I think the job at Arsenal, even though he lost his job, there were really good times in there, and you could see he somehow look. He got way longer than Arteta did. Uh, sorry, Arteta got way longer than he did. So, I think what we've seen is a real proper, knowledgeable. Um, you could pick his one to eleven pretty easily, Gregor. That's a good sign for a manager and a club. If you know you can go, we're all going to a game on a Saturday, and we go. We'll probably get 10 out of the 11 right. It's a big thing. Yeah. The difference between um, Gerard and Emery is Gerard came in and saw the deficiencies in each player and Emery saw the potential. And I think this is a mm. problem when you're a fated player like Lampard and Gerard were. You You can't but help exude disappointment because they're not the players you're managing or not at your level. And so there's a sort of inability to grasp that, well, not inability to grasp that this is, this is your job almost. You're not, you're not there to just simply inspire because you, you know how to win because you've played in big matches and you are a winner to your core because you've got, you know, it says on your CV what you've won. It's not, Managing isn't about that. Managing is exact. I mean, Emery has done exactly, you know, if you were to put an advert in the paper to say we need a head coach, he would fulfill everything you need from a new head coach because he came in with energy, optimism. He had a great CV, but it was a great coaching CV and that ability to take uh, a non non too glamorous club you know, a club that clearly has something, some things not going quite right or not quite big enough. He's really good at those clubs. He's really good at saying, come on, come on. I know what we've got here. And I know how I can make, I can make every single one of you better and make you a unit, make you greater than the sum of your parts. And it's almost like there's an inherent problem if you come into a job because of your reputation as a player or partly because of your reputation as a player and, and maybe your career as a player is too close to when you take over a big club or a biggish club is that you you you're you view it in a completely different way you view it as a glass half empty and I think Stephen Gerrard would say the right things about the players but I, I never felt he meant it really that he, he actually believed he could meld them together whereas Emery just exuded from the very first minute this sense that he was rolling up his sleeves 
and he had every faith that he could make them good enough and he, he's he's he's, o, he's overachieved looking out from the outside but looking at his career he's not overachieved he's done what you would expect him to do it's extraordinary it's job. To see how emery does next season because in his career i think he's always been a real master at kind of taking slightly middling teams up to a kind of level of uh, almost elite. The, the, where he's come unstuck, I think, has almost been when his teams have then suddenly hit that level and then had to take on the kind of role of favourites, if you like. Emery Emery's a fantastic coach of, sort of preparing for opponents, like an underdog coach almost. He's incredibly clever, very smart, one of the most best prepared coaches for matches, I think, in the world. But what he, where he sort of came unstuck, I think, at Villarreal and also at Sevilla and, and I think probably at Arsenal as well, was when suddenly opponents started to kind of respect his team more and, and the job for him was to kind of break them down and to create a team that was was almost spontaneous and fluid and fluent enough. Um, I mean, I think he's he's right up there in the, in the kind of candidates for manager of the year this year. And, and it kind of does show as well what a, what a good appointment can do. You know, you look at like so Chelsea and Tottenham and... Um, other clubs in the league, you know, people sort of saying it's broken beyond repair and needs a complete reset. And I think sometimes we can kind of overestimate that kind of thing. Actually, mm. if you get a really key appointment right, you put in a really good coach who who can make players better, as Tony says, you know, very basic fundamental thing of a good coach, making middling players good players, making average players into middling players, then, then you know, you can very quickly turn things around. It will be interesting, I think, next season with Villa, suddenly the expectation is more. Suddenly the bottom half of the league are playing against them as though they are a good team rather than sort of a surprise team. It'll be interesting to see if Emery can kind of take them on and, and, and turn them into a team that can mm. challenge for the top four. I would add to that that his PSG experience was defined really by one game because he'd done, done very, very well there, had a very good PSG team. And OK, we can all go, yeah, they win the League One, you know, Liga every year. That OK, that, that's a given. But the you know they beat Barcelona four 0 and lost six one away in Barcelona and that one game literally was the downfall of Unai Emery at PSG. After that, I feel a little bit guilty about. Um, after the World Cup, I was asked to write a piece about you know the, the clubs who might gate crash Europe. I, I wrote about Brighton, Fulham. And Brentford. I didn't even mention Villa, <laughs> and, they, and they've come from nowhere. So didn't need to really. Well, well, I mean, it was unfathomable, really, wasn't it? Yeah, Considering where course. they were when he when he took the job. So it's an incredible job. And we'll, Tom, we will uh, I will ask you for a, a manager of the season uh, a little bit later. But first of all, just just to kind of pan out and look at the the season as a whole. Now we've had we had a title race. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, as we've seen, a, a, a relegation battle for the ages. Um, but I was reading Johnny Northcroft's kind of uh, summary of the season in, in the Sunday Times, and some of the things he he referenced that you just you, you feel it was from a different season altogether. You remember Thomas Tuchel and An- Antonio Conte's sort of handshake on the touchline at the start of the season? <laughs> remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Ronaldo's TV interview with yeah. Piers Morgan, the blooming World Cup right in the middle of the season, yeah. uh, Chelsea and Graham Potter's kind of soap opera and the six hundred million pound spend. And after that, their worst finish since the 60s, I think. Mm. Um, all three te- promoted teams staying up. Erling Haaland banging in 50-odd goals. Um, all the sackings and interim managers. A great, great um, start by Bill Edgar in the, in the Times today. This season featured the most monarchs, too. 
uh, the most prime ministers three <laughs> and the most top flight managers 39 including caretakers I love Bill so um, it has you know we always say at the end of the season what a season it's been but this really has been a hell of a season Tony yeah I, I said that on radio yesterday I was talking about it I said I can't remember a season like 22-23 that so much happened within a season and obviously the sackings of managers was just ridiculously high I mean what was it 13 in the end and there's interim managers as well and there's going to be change at other clubs no one knows what's happening with Roy a 75 year old man comes back into football and saves Crystal Palace and yet no sort of real Indication whether he's going to be there next season. He's under normal. He pointedly said that actually yeah, in his interview I, yesterday. But it is Somebody needs to offer me a job before I can say whether I'm going to take it or well, not. He's done brilliantly <laughs> well, and you sort of think, well, you know, it goes back to that Unai Emery of coach improve players or know what players are good at, uh, and and he does that really really well. You know, he's had an amazing career. But you go from club to club. I've watched Jurgen Klopp battle with Liverpool and, and knows his team are in free fall and then it ends up what was it 11 games unbeaten at the end of the season from a team that looked like every week for a certain part of the year they look like they're going to get B every week I've seen Man United start the season terribly Ten Hag I'm thinking how long will you make Christmas you know with the way they <laughs> yeah. were going and then by the end we're go- I'm looking and thinking do you know what he had some unbelievable challenges at that football club this year and he's got them to third I don't know, by hook or by crook, he's managed to get them. And they haven't been inspirational in the way they've done it. They've been pretty methodical. So there's loads and loads of great stories this year. Alison, what stood out to you? I just think it's... Try and pick one thing. <laughs> I just think it's really funny that we're talking about almost the minutiae of whether Roy Hodgson will be offered a job or won't he be offered a job. <laughs> we had an absolute blooming World Cup in the middle yeah, of the season. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's 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 so easy to forget that happened. And it'll probably take us several years to work out what the impact of that was on the season. And was the season so crazy because of the, because of the preparation for the World Cup, then the World Cup? And then the aftermath of the World Cup. I think you can't, we mm. can't know. I, I mean, my gut feeling is it's it's at the root of most of what happened. But it's, it's utter madness that this huge, huge thing that is, you know, the greatest, the greatest league in the world, the Premier League. And it's, it is an amazing entity. And then you interrupt it for the greatest show on earth, the World Cup. It's going to have, it's going to have an impact and there's a part of me that sort of to be completely honest there's a part of me that resents that still it shouldn't it shouldn't have happened i mean it shouldn't have happened on a sports washing level obviously it shouldn't have been in qatar at all and to meddle with it the the timing of a world cup it's, it's all wrong 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 but on a purely sort of parochial reviewing reviewing of the premier league season a lot of the things we've discussed wouldn't have happened unless there had been the break for the World Cup, I think. And I think, as Johnny said, the result of that was competitive football in all 12 months of the year. With the FA Cup will finish in June and the the, the Community Shield started, started in July this year. So it's who knows what kind of toll it might take on the players too, Tom. I mean, it's it's been some season for them. Yeah, I mean, I guess I remember writing articles during the World Cup, you know, how is this going to affect the second half of the season? Which teams are going to be... Uh, most affected, you know, we're going to see certain clubs kind of suddenly fall off a cliff. I don't know if we did see that really, but I, I think if you kind of look across Europe for sort of wider trends, I mean, 
you know, we saw Napoli win Serie A, we saw Dortmund, you know, really should have won Bundesliga. Arsenal were right there until the end in the Premier League. I wonder if this was a season for kind of, you know, the the underdogs. There was a sort of a certain chaos which which fed into the idea that lesser clubs, smaller teams could, you know, had a chance this season, whether that was a physical thing or a psychological thing. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think specifically for the Premier League, you know, I, I mean, I personally will always remember this season for kind of Brighton and Brentford. I, I really think they were the, the, the two teams that sort of lit up the division this year. I mean, Brentford, you know, beating City twice, thrashed United, beat Liverpool, beat Tottenham. You know, I mean, Brighton obviously playing, in my opinion, the best football in the league and playing Arsenal off the park at, at the Emirates. You know, these are these are two teams who I think show what the Premier League has kind of become, that there is now no, you know, we were talking earlier about how, you know, there's there's no safety anymore. And and part of that is because the bottom teams, there's no longer any bad sides in the Premier League. I know that's sort of an old cliche, but it's kind of caught up with itself. It's now true. You know, you have people like Palinia playing at Fulham. You have Lopetegui, a sort of former Real Madrid and Spain coach, managing at Wolves. You know, every single side has two or three really, really good players. You've got Kayla Navas playing goal for Nottingham Forest, you know. And I think what it, what it means is that you suddenly have you know, two or three teams, if they recruit well, they're getting a couple of, you know, really good coach, they can challenge that kind of top six mm-hmm. now. And it was so refreshing to see Brighton and Brentford playing like that. And, and you know, we'll, you know, suddenly you have Chelsea in 12th and you have Liverpool in, you know, okay, fifth now, but in eighth, Tottenham in eighth. You know, I mean, there's no longer, in my opinion, a kind of set top four, top six, you know, because you have these kind of upstarts like Villa, Brighton, Brentford, who are going to be right in there every season because they've got good players they've got good coaches and I think this was the season that we really saw that come to fruition Okay a few quick awards what a player and a manager of the of the season from, from each of you Tony you first Player well I'm still going to go with Haaland I think it's obviously quite predictable but I do think his achievements but you, you know you have to take in consideration as well he's missed quite a few minutes you know he's been subbed quite a few times of um, as he's you know, played, got two goals or three goals, and he's off. He's been off at half time, and towards the end of this season, he's obviously the Champions League finals in front of him, and the FA Cup final. But I, I think he's had an amazing season considering it's his debut season. Um, manager, I, I'm, I'm always conflicted with manager because I do think deserve candidates this year. Like, oh, there's well, we, I so think many reasons. You, you could argue that the Premier League probably has six, seven of the best pre- managers in the world in it at the moment. Um, uh, Guardiola's done extraordinary. I think, you know, obviously Newcastle have done well with Eddie Howe. I think I still think I would opt for probably Thomas Frank okay. because I just feel like they didn't have second se- season syndrome. And, you know, Ivan Tony got a lot of goals last season. He's got even more this season. And I think Mbumo is one of them players that's just got better and better because he's being coached better. You know, and I just think across the board, watching Pinnock and me be centre ask for them too, Rayo in goal, Rico Henry at left back to ensure I'd probably opt for them because of their budget and just a tight knit group that's done unbelievably well. And as Tom said, the teams they've beat, it's been ridiculous. And they've not only beaten them, they've battered some of them. Yeah, there's there's a table a table of uh, results against the big six in their top. This season, incredible, well, yeah. I'd probably go for Thomas Frank, yeah. Okay, Alison. I too go for Thomas Frank. Okay. I've seen a lot of Brentford live. Um, so that, that clearly biases you when you're choosing your manager because you end up um speaking to the manager if you're at the game. And uh, Thomas Frank's just such a very intelligent, personable 
person and if you ask a good question he'll say Alison that's such a good question obviously <laughs> I love that but um no but seriously and actually though no, that does speak to a lack of ego actually there are a lot of managers who wouldn't wouldn't do that wouldn't wouldn't want to praise the the questioner but anyway he's um he just says it's all about working very hard uh that's not a negative is it good hard work is worth rewarding they are top of that table of results against the the big six and they it's i think it's because i've seen them a lot i can say this it's not just that they are the underdog who plan and use their physical prowess and their abilities at set pieces to defeat teams i mean i know klopp said it was you know the hardest team he played against at set pieces it they're not just that brentford are actually really good fun to watch they they do they do play expansively as well there is a lot of good passing um you know raya at the back i think is probably well, he's certainly up there as one of those keepers where you know he'll do the pre-assist quite a lot and he's upfield a lot that speaks of a team that is so confident you know they 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 don't believe they're going to lose possession cheaply they they have faith in their um attack when they attack they attack but they get back they are super fit very good to watch incredibly well coached um and so oh, for so many reasons and also his journey i mean you know He's, he, he, he had a playoff disappointment with Brentford, but they didn't sort of think, oh, we've missed our chance. They got back. They, they, they pulled it together. They got their promotion, their first, their first ever campaign in the Premier League. They, you know, they were scintillating. And as Tony said, everyone said, well, you know, it won't last for a second season. Well, they almost, you know, they almost got European football. And I fully suspect, because that would have felt like a disappointment, that they will get it next season. They are on a trajectory. Um, he's faultless, actually, given the resources. So he's um, without doubt my manager of the season. And um, my player of the season, simply because I voted for him in the football writers' poll, is Erdegaard, because I don't think Arsenal would have put together a title challenge without him. Uh, he's not been scintillating form latterly, but for the bulk of the season... Mm. He was a joy to watch. Again, I like the fact he improved. His backstory is quite interesting. He's a sort of wonder kid that almost failed, but he, it worked for him at Arsenal. And he just became the sort of creative glue, but also the sensible glue at the club. Um, occasionally very, very pretty to watch. Uh, I just think his usefulness was... And I just, I just rather watch him than Erling Haaland, to be quite honest. I, don't, I find Haaland quite one-dimensional most of the time. So they're, they're my two picks. Okay. Tom? Yeah, I mean, Haaland's almost in that territory now already where sort of like Messi was in that league where sort of every award has to be, yeah, the, everyone accepts, you know, Messi, everyone accepts Haaland. If it's, if it's not Haaland, um, then I think Odegaard's a great, uh, a very strong candidate. I think Harry Kane is a very strong candidate. Um, Alexis McAllister, I think, at Brighton as, as well, worth a word. I mean, won the World Cup and also was probably the most influential player in, in one of the one of the most uh, uh, interesting and, and exciting teams in the division. Manager of the season, there are lots of candidates, I and mean, it's obviously worth giving a, a nod to Arteta. Obviously, Arsenal had an incredible season, just failed just at the end. But I mean, the job he's done um, has been incredible. I personally would go for Deserbi. I just think the way Brighton have played. Um, 
the players that they have and the, and the, the, the job that De Zerbi has done. I know he came in into a team that was already ticking under Graham Potter. And I guess you can look at that in two ways. One, he already had a side that was doing well, but also I think it was a huge challenge to follow Potter, you know, in the middle of the season. A lot of people were kind of very raising their eyebrows when De Zerbi came in at that, that moment. And he just sort of took it on with a lot of good sense, calmness, and very humble, not trying to impose his style and way of playing too soon. And I think he uh, already, people are talking about him as a potential, you know, star of the future in terms of coaching. So I'd go for, for De Zerbi. Gregor, come on. Yeah, well, we were asked to do this for the paper and I went for Haaland and De Zerbi. De Zerbi by, over Eddie Howe by a, a fraction because of the way they play. I think it's, as Tom said, I think they're the best team to watch in the Premier League now because they're and so they brave. So Don't forget, they lost Trossard in January. You know, they're what, arguably their best, most important player, you know, in the middle of the season got pinched and no one even really thinks about that now, you know I mean? The, the way they absorbed that, the way De Zerbi just sort of handled it very sort of uh, decisively. Um, very impressive. I think Eddie well, Howe... we need we need a game podcast manager of the year, and so it has to be Thomas Frank because he's <laughs> <Sounds like managed, laughs> he's managed more games than Deserby. Dada. Okay, yeah. there you go. We've uh, we're always a bit left field here, aren't we? So um... he likes questions as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Leicester, Leeds, and Southampton are the teams that go down. Burnley and Sheffield United uh, replace them, and the final team to join them in the Premier League will be Luton Town <laughs> after a pretty epic playoff final. Not a classic, they never are, um, but weighty, so much pressure, um, and they, they got past Coventry City on penalty kicks. Tom, you were there, what was it like? What was the atmosphere like? Um, what was it like when Rob Edwards went hearing up that touchline and thought he'd won it at the end of extra time and then realised he hadn't? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was, I don't know if I can remember a kind of harsher VAR overturn <laughs> yeah. you know, in the kind of 117th minute of extra time. Most, uh, what is it, the, you know, the, the most, the most uh, biggest prize financially in the world game, um, you know, to have that goal, everyone cheering and then to have it reversed. I, I can't remember a more uh, painful overturn. Um, fair play to Luton. I, I sort of felt overall they deserved it. I mean, it was... It was a strange game because I think they were so clearly the dominant side in the first half, or at least the kind of first 40 minutes. You sort of thought, well, Coventry are nowhere near this, you know, and it's just a matter of time before Luton put them away. But actually, Coventry really came back into it in the second half and, and Luton just really faded. Um, I think, you know, Coventry put two up front, they were, went a little bit more direct and suddenly there was a there was a game there. And, and I think overall, you know, Luton deserve it. You know, ultimately they finished third. I always kind of quite like it when the team they finished third um, go up. They finished 10 points above Coventry. Um, there was a nice, a nice atmosphere about the match. And I, I haven't done enough championship playoff finals to know if this is always the case. But it, it felt like both fans were kind of um, appreciative of how far the other club had come. You know, there was kind of a mutual respect and appreciation for the journeys that both of these teams have been on. And, and blimey, you know... Luton, for example, we all know, um, you know, back from the fifth tier to the first tier. I mean, it, you know, it's just been incredible, you know, what they've had to kind of go through the financial turmoil that, you know, they're playing away. You know, I mean, Pelly Ruddock and Panzi, for example, the first player ever to to uh, to climb from non-league to the Premier League with the same club. You know, he was playing away at sort of losing at Braintree in Halifax a few years ago. There's a, he's talking about how he used to train with Luton on a, in a public field and people would kind of walk through the middle of sessions with their dogs, you know, and... And here he is in the Premier League. I mean, it's just, it's a fantastic story. And um, the idea of kind of Manchester United and, and, and Chelsea and, and Arsenal fans, you know, walking through the, the Oak entrance, you know, next season, um, 
cut in the middle of those uh, those Victorian terrace houses and walking over people's gardens to get to the pitch. I mean, I think there's not enough of this in football. You know, some people will sneer about it and kind of say you know, this this is not a club ready for the Premier League. But I'm I'm all for it. You know, in the in the kind of the era of Premier League wealth and dominance and signing up every single star player and manager there is, I think fantastic that there's going to be a team like Luton right there. Uh, bringing everyone down to earth next season, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they get on. Tom, can I ask you? Can I ask you because you were there? Because on telly, it's hard to know um, that when Tom Lockyer collapsed, is was that? Do you think that's why it wasn't a great footballing spectacle? Did you, do you think that affected the the overall vibe of football? I just, I, I just felt. Yeah. It was interesting afterwards that some of the players were saying that Luton players were kind of saying that it was on their minds and, and they spoke about it at half time as well. I mean, I think they were sort of, you know, talking about it in, in terms of we must win this match for Tom, you know. And um, But I think there, it was kind of lingering a little bit. Um, I mean, I, 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 I think it was difficult at the time to really know what had happened and what the severity of it was. And I'm not sure how aware of it the fans were, for example. Um, but it was the case that the Luton players were definitely aware of it. You know, they spoke afterwards how they were, um, you know, speaking about it at half time. They were holding up his shirt when they were celebrating. Um, and obviously, you know, he's been such a huge figure in the promotion push. You know, it was, it was a shame really that he wasn't there all the way through. But um, I like the picture of, of that his dad posted of him celebrating in hospital, kind of all plugged up with wires and, you know, all over his body, but still kind of jumping up and down. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it necessarily affected the quality of the game, but I think it was definitely uh, there in the, in the kind of psychology of the Luton players. Great backstory, isn't it, for both clubs, you know, from where they've come from. I mean, I was a, a Luton when Johnny Steele was involved, and I'm sure, Gregor, you'd have met John along the, along the years. Played against them, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, well, Johnny Steele, he, well, I was non-league. I went and watched a lot, a lot of Luton. My my missus is, from, is a Lutonite. Okay. Or from a Lutonian, as you'll be more precise. <laughs> and uh, she watched the whole game with me. In my whole 15 years with her, she's never watched a whole game with me sitting on the sofa. And every time the telly flashed to the stands, she'd say, oh, I know them from Luton in the stands. <laughs> I said, am I going to get this the whole game? I just want to watch the game. And it was, I've seen all her WhatsApp messages going for all the Lutonians, you know, just, it was, it was glorious. And look, I felt sorry for Mark Robbins. Yeah. I've just thought, what a job he's done. And, if you said to me one of the you know players that played under Fergie and how well they've done in management, we've had Steve Bruce, Brian Robson, Mark Hughes, and you sort of forget about Mark Robbins, and yet actually he's gone for a real difficult path, and he changed things at halftime. Coventry weren't even in it, weren't even close, and he changed it around and made a game of it. And I felt a lot of sympathy towards Coventry and their fans because their journey was as harsh as what Luton's has been. Yeah, when we talk about Luton coming from the fifth tier. Robbins single-handedly has, has taken Coventry from yeah. the fourth tier. So you know he would have been. I think he would have been the first, surely the first manager in the Premier League era to take a club from League Two to the top mm. flight. Um, and to lose on penalties is such a such a sore way to lose. Um, but also, I saw really you know the point you alluded to there, Tom, about the kind of pyramid and and the you know this is a great story, is that in 2016 when Leicester won the league, Luton finished 11th in League Two. So like. <laughs> Then they're bypassing them on the way to the Premier League. So you know, you know all the kind of. There's a lot of talk about this being a miracle, though, with Luton. It's not a miracle. They've been one of the best run clubs for a good yeah. decade now. Um, and there'll, there'll be the whole narrative about Ken Kenilworth Road and mm. you know the Erling Haaland walking through that that entrance. And, although it's a different entrance, but it's it's equally as dull. And it's like a 
kind of subterranean tunnel the players' entrance at, at Kenilworth Road. But it's a great atmosphere and it'll be a great thing for the for the Premier League. And I bet they'll uh, they'll take one or two scalps at home at Kenilworth Road next season. Well, they mustn't lose their desire and hunger and togetherness that they certainly had all during the season. They're a very very hard working team. They mustn't lose that. And adding quality to that is going to be tricky with budgets. And you don't want to unsettle what you've already got at a football club as well. So it's going to be a balancing act. Quick nod to... And I think I think they'll take heart from Bournemouth, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people were really sniffy about the Vitality Stadium. You know, like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, they are simply too small to survive in the Premier League. And they were everybody's pick to go straight back down Bournemouth, partly because... The Vitality Stadium is so small. It's only slightly bigger capacity than Kenilworth Road. And yet they stayed up with quite a few weeks to spare Bournemouth. And you, when you're there, you feel like it's as, it's as intimidating as Old Trafford can be, just in a slightly different way. You know, intimacy can be off-putting for the opposition and it can certainly generate enough noise to carry a team over the line. So I fully expect Kenilworth Road, even though it's relatively very small to be a positive rather than a negative factor in their first year back absolutely we should we should do worst manager and worst player as well okay go for it <laughs> you clearly got you one go in first, the locker Craig. no way you set me up there <laughs> no i was thinking of it you know how you sort of i mean it sounds a bit harsh did it and we're i'm just being a bit a bit dark but sometimes you sort of think Who's been the worst manager? Who's been the worst player? I mean, I was thinking a fur poet Leeds had had a pretty dreadful oh. season. I mean, every time I watched him, he made a mistake. Um, and then Scotty Parker's, uh, Scotty Parker's experience early, and then literally saying on the telly that this group is nowhere near good enough, and the guy that replaces you ends up keeping them up comfortably. You know, um, I mean, Frank Lampard's got to be in. Well, the yeah, team. I mean that period was just pretty <laughs> I- incredible as well under uh, under Lampard at Chelsea and. Um, I don't know. Lee, I'll leave you two to the rest. I found like I've been critical unnecessary. <laughs> Do you want to chip in with anyone? Christian Stellini, I feel like uh, you know, conceding five goals in 21 minutes at Newcastle must be uh, must be up there for one of the worst managerial performances in a single game um, in Premier League history. What about one of the Chelsea signings? Maybe you know, most disappointing anyway. Enzo Fernandez. I don't know. Oh, that's a bit harsh. He's a World Cup winner, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> someone needs to be, someone needs to be accountable at Chelsea for this season, right? I think there's quite a number of candidates at Chelsea on that that the doorstep. I think Aubameyang has hardly showed anything this year. Um, but anyway, Al. Well, I think I think you've got to say Brendan Rodgers has got to be on the uh, naughty boy list, hasn't he? Because Surprise he'll get away with it because he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't in charge on the day they went down, Leicester, but. Anybody who bothers an- analysing what went wrong, he, he is culpable. He is the coach that allowed the team to... I mean, he neglected them. You know, it's like having a beautiful garden. If you don't do the weeding and the mowing and so on, it will, it will, it will, it will slowly just flounder and look ugly. And he didn't nurture... He had problems. He didn't get the money he wanted, but rather than rolling his sleeves up and saying, right, and acknowledging the situation and thinking, right, we now have to act like a team that is not going to be anywhere near relegation. He sort of allowed it to uh, permeate, permeate their psyche. So I think given he's clearly a capable coach because he won he won the club, the FA Cup, which is, and they really, really wanted that, he's, he's not, he is culpable. So I would put him up there, I think. Player Al. 
Can you think of a player that's really disappointed you? Well, I think I think there are a lot of players that have been disappointed because they've come in, but they've not been like yeah, Chelsea. There's loads of them, but they've not mm. been given the um, not been given the playing time to mm. prove themselves. Mm. So I think overall, you've got to say someone like Kai Havertz, who we know is technically an extremely good player, but for some reason, even though he's been given the minutes on the pitch, has looked completely uninterested. Okay. Up. Oh, you go. I was going to move on there. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I would have gone for a one year until the last few weeks because he was he was he was awful for much of the season, and then he's just about single handedly kept Forrest up. So that maybe just shows you that we shouldn't yeah. write them off too soon. Yeah. It might uh, <laughs> it might turn for Junior Firpo in the championship. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, congratulations too to Carlisle, Carlisle United who uh, mm. who won the League Two playoff final against Stockport, Stockport County, also on penalty kicks. Um, and both managers actually have something in common in that they both worked for uh, the FA, Paul Simpson and Rob Edwards, and both cited the report done by um, Chris Markham at the FA into penalty kicks and they were how closely they worked with that. And, uh, and I think it rubbed off. So it got two promotions in the bag on yeah. via, via penalty kicks. So well done to Luton Town and to Carlisle United. Okay, well, my thanks to Tony Cascarino. Alison Rudd and Tom Allnett. For more great content, check out the game in today's times and we will be back on Thursday. Thursday.